Um, this morning, I want to I begin by um, just telling you, I know many of you, if not most of you, are aware that my father passed away uh, Wednesday evening. So I just wanted to tell you thank you so much for your prayers and um, encouraging words. So um, I appreciate that, and it, it means a lot. Um, I wanted to make a, a couple of things that are uh, coming up tomorrow night. Um, the women will be gathering at the farmhouse, uh, which is downtown Silva. It is a great opportunity for you to bring a friend and to get to know some of the other ladies in the church. And um, it's, It usually turns out to be a very powerful time. And if you've never been, then maybe you can um, either go or if you'd like to find someone to go with you, then that would be uh, a great opportunity. Saturday, we have the men's breakfast, and that's the same kind of atmosphere and opportunity where um, there's always a, a speaker at these things uh, and there's wonderful opportunity for you to get to get to know some of the people in the church a little more clearly and um, and also get to hear some of their stories about how God is is working and uh, we do have a we have a business meeting tonight, and if you'd like to come and learn a little bit more about some of the things in the church, then we would invite you to come. So let's turn our heart now to prayer and ask God's presence as we begin to work through um, the second chapter of Second Corinthians. Father, we just pray to you and are so thankful that you do have the capacity to fill the atmosphere. Uh, we are aware that there are times in the Word of God when you so filled the atmosphere that people had to leave. It was just overwhelming uh, when your glory decided to visit in such a, um, a more a deeper and more full, fuller way. And that's what we long for, God. We desire for your presence. We desire to know your power. We desire to know all the things that come with the gospel and that when Jesus comes into a community, that's the kind of community that we desire to be, Lord. And we pray that you would be our teacher this morning and that you would um, guide us and help us to understand that you would open up insight and understanding and that you would give us willing hearts to hear your word and willing hearts to obey your word. And we ask for that power, God. We don't want to just have information. We want to see transformation. And so we pray that you might work in us a great work this morning. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, uh, I guess one of the questions we can ask and ought to ask is, are, are we a biblical church? And I hope you would say, well, I hope so. But the only way we can know is by reading the Bible to make sure. You can't know if you're a biblical church if you don't read the Bible and study the Bible. And so that's kind of what we do. And sometimes... Um, when we go through the Bible, we come across things that maybe we wouldn't ordinarily um, think about. And we so desperately need God's revealed word to us. Um, so one of the ways to ask ourselves is if we think this is a biblical church is do we have problems? Do we have problems? Um, is your view of a healthy church one that has problems? Um, if it's not, then you're quite unrealistic and a bit dreamy and actually unbiblical. There's not a church of Jesus Christ. There wasn't one in the New Testament and there isn't one that exists today that doesn't have problems. And so if you're new 
and um, you're kind of new here, then I need to let you know um, we have problems and we're really glad that you're thinking about bringing your problems here too. Um, that's what Jesus wants, is he wants to help us with our problems. And he is highly qualified. And that's what we find out, that church is a place where people have problems, but not that they ignore them, but they come to Jesus to work on them and to discover them and to gain victory over them. So I've found about a dozen things in this passage that I'm just going to make reference to and um, we're going to see if we can't um, hear maybe what God is saying to us in some of these things. I'm going to back up because I didn't really deal with some of this in chapter 1, but in verse 23 of chapter 1, there's something I want to um, re reference. and it's he, Paul says, I call God to witness against me. Now, that's really not a very small, smart thing to do unless you mean business. Um, some in Corinthians were attacking Paul's motives as an apostle and a servant of God. And he actually welcomes God's searching light. And he calls God to witness. He calls God to the witness stand. I, I don't know if some of you did this, but when I was a kid, we used to do this thing. It's like, are you telling the truth? Yes. Do you, are you really telling the truth? Yes. Do you swear to God you're telling the truth? And we would say something like that and then typically lie anyway. Because I don't think we had a proper revere of God. I think we just said, well, if you, if you say what you're saying now, that you're kind of backed into a corner, you don't want to let people know that you're lying. So you bring the, the witness of God against you. And it's actually a horrible thing to do. It's a terrible thing to do if you're going to go ahead and lie anyway. And so without knowing it, sometimes people invite a curse upon their own heads. And they ask God to bear witness and then they go ahead and lie. In, in the court of law, that's called perjury. And it ups the ante when you lie in court. And you place your hand on a Bible and say, Will you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help me God. Like you're calling God to the witness stand. And Paul was willing to do that. He was so, if anyone knew what it was to, to say something and call God as a witness, Paul did. And he was like eager to say, I'm prepared to call God as a witness that I love you all and that I have done what I've done out of love for you. And so he was willing to address some problems in light of some of the accusations that he was being a false apostle. And so he didn't mind doing that. I just want to recommend never call God to witness and then dare to lie. Um, how Satan must shrill in ecstasy when people invite God to witness and then tell a bold-faced lie. Truth-telling is vital to spiritual health. In Ephesians 5.25 it says, Put away among the church, put away falsehood. You really think that would have to be told in the church? It's right here in the Bible. So I'm telling you. And God is telling us. Put away falsehood. Stop lying. 
Let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. In Proverbs 14, 5, it says, An honest witness does not deceive, but a false witness pours out lies. And so I want to ask if, if you might have a problem with lying. And if so, then you've come to the right place. Remember, Satan is the father of lies, it says in John 8, 44. So let us have nothing to do with Satan and let us walk in the light. So today I'm giving any of you an opportunity as we go through the service today, as we come to the end. Maybe you have a problem with being truthful. And so I would love for you to take that to Christ. A second thing I've noticed before we even get into chapter 2 is something I'm calling heavy-handed leadership. Heavy-handed spiritual leadership. Paul says, it was to spare you. He says, I'm calling God as a witness. It was to spare you. Like God is my witness that I was doing this out of love for you. Not that we lord it over your faith. And some people call it lording over other people. When they're spiritual leaders that lord over someone. Um, would you agree that you never really know what someone's like until they're put in a position of authority? Have you ever watched someone change when they, came, when they became in charge? There's experiments, there's stories of what happens when people suddenly are in charge and they just change. They like that power. And they take people that they used to be equal with and they start acting as if they're superior. And can I say that's not of God? Some people change when they get a little title or a position, or a badge, or they have power. And those who seek to control others by manipulation and oppression are being influenced by Satan. That's what Satan does. Satan uses power to abuse people. And when that happens in the church, it's of Satan. When it happens in a marriage, that's of Satan. When it happens at an employment or on a team, that's not of God. That is of Satan. So many people have been abused and deeply wounded by spiritual leaders. Instead of loving those under them, seek to control them and dominate them. And Paul did not desire to have that kind of influence over others. He wanted to shepherd lovingly and gently. Peter said this to the shepherds of God's flock in 1 Peter 5, 2-3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And he says, use the oversight but not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Have you ever been hurt by the church? It's not of God. And God says, shepherd lovingly, don't use your power ever. For selfish advantage. Maybe there's something that's happened here in that way, and so we ask you to forgive us. We are frail human leaders, and sometimes people in position sin. And so I pray that your unwillingness or your fear of placing yourself under leadership in a church of Christ could very well be due to someone who abused that leadership. So I pray that God would bring healing to you if that is the case. And then Paul speaks of the heart, heartache of leadership. He talks about pain in this passage, like his pain, pain he was feeling. 
And he says in chapter 2, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit. Like his visit was painful. It wasn't always joyful. And he says, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? Like something was going on in their relationship that was difficult. When I came, I might not suffer pain <clears throat> from those who would have made me rejoice. And then he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of soul or heart with many tears. Do you know that leaders, spiritual leaders, should know something about the pain of those they lead? They should weep over sin and sorrow and destruction. True spiritual leaders feel the burdens of those they lead. They don't want to get rid of people who have problems. They want to help people that have problems. They don't walk away when sins make messes in the church. They feel burdened when sin makes a mess of things. Hanging upon the cross, Jesus cried to heaven, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus knew the consequence of their sins and also knew what would happen if they refused to seek God's forgiveness. In the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus poured out in agony, literally sweating blood. So intense was his prayer as he called and interceded for the people of God. And he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Such prayers from the mouth and heart of our Savior. To care for someone is to enter into their hurt. And never did anyone do this as Jesus did. A fourth observation from this passage is the addressing of problems in the church. In this letter, it's a whole two letters of addressing problems in the church. So one of the issues that we have to say a biblical church will address problems. In Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is the simplest and the classical passage on how to deal with sin in the church. And Matthew 18 says something like this. If someone sins against you, go to them and seek to reconcile. It doesn't just say sit on it. Ignore it, hold it, let it root into bitterness for you. It says pray for reconciliation and, and go to them and pursue that reconciliation. If they don't listen, then bring a spiritual brother or sister with you and try to resolve it. And then if they don't listen to that, you might need to get the church leadership involved. And if they refuse to respond after all of that effort, you might have to take a stand that that person is currently refusing to walk with Christ, even as Christ has lovingly brought the matter to their attention. They're just saying, no, I want my sin. And this requires the direct mediation of God on both sides of this. Church leaders can be bullies and use their positions to greatly harm people. And people can be determined to hold on to their sins and refuse to respond even to loving correction that God might send their way. So God's grace needs to be active in the church of Jesus Christ for there to be a healthy atmosphere where there's sin, people confessing sin, people reconciling sin. Leaders need the grace of God to handle information lovingly and correctly. And the people who are in sin need the grace of God to handle what they're going through lovingly 
and obediently to God. It takes both. And Paul was working through this kind of relationships in the church of Jesus Christ. They were addressing problems. And I also notice forgiveness and comforting as something that should be going on in the church. If anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So there we see some sort of, of church discipline was enacted. And it was painful. And it was hard, but it appears that whoever it was responded in a... Um, a Godward way and they repented of their sin and they sought reconciliation. And then listen to what verse 7 says. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort them or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I'm sure you know this, but can you know that it can be harder to forgive someone than for you to seek forgiveness? Do you know how hard it is for us to give some, forgive someone who's offended us? Do you know how we love to carry that? Do you know how we love to tell people what someone has done to us? We love to be the victim. We love for people to say, you have no idea how badly I've been treated. And let me tell you who mistreated me. And let me tell you what they've done. Do you know how easy it is to walk around as a martyr offended it gets you attention. Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe you had to go through this. And your identity becomes as a victim, not a victor. Christ wants you to be a victor. And the only way you're going to be a victor is if you forgive and you find forgiveness. It says that you need to turn to forgive and comfort. Or the people may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And sometimes people want people to not feel forgiven. They want them to pay for their sins. They want them to hurt. They want them to feel what you made me feel. They don't want God to take care of it. In Romans it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But we're like going, no, I want vengeance. I'm the one offended. I want them to pay for what they've done. I want people to know what they've done to me. I can't wait to tell what this so-called brother or sister has done to me. And it grieves the Spirit of God and it breaks the fellowship in the church of Jesus. Healthy churches will address problems and they will seek forgiveness and then they will seek to forgive the one. They will seek to cover offenses. Unforgiveness has dried up and hardened many a soul. In Matthew 6, 12, we are told to forgive our debtors, forgive those who've trespassed against us, forgive those who've offended us. As we have, um, we're asking God, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Like, Lord God, forgive me for my sins. And the expectation is, as I forgive those who sinned against me. It's like, Lord God, forgiveness is a, a new characteristic in me. I love your forgiveness, and I love to give that forgiveness. And Jesus said, when you, when you go to church, don't put anything in the offering plate. 
Don't offer your praise to God. If you've got sinful unforgiveness in your heart. In Matthew 5, it says if you, if you are offering your gift at the altar, like an act of worship, if you're worshiping, giving an act of gift, and remember your brother has something against you, like there's an offense between you and there's something going on in the church and you just like certain people you don't want to see, you don't want to get near them, you don't want to have dealings with them. It says leave your gift before you go to the altar. No, Lord, stop what you're doing. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come with a clean conscience and clear the matter. That pleases God when there's forgiveness and reconciliation regularly occurring in the, in the life of the church. Because we know there's offenses regularly occurring. There ought to be pursuing forgiveness and restoration regularly occurring. Make sure you express your love and forgiveness in a tangible way that reveals that you have forgiven. So if you've worked through with someone, don't just simply shake hands like two little pouty kids, say you're sorry, I'm sorry, and they walk off just as mad as when they're saying I'm sorry. Like the only reason they're saying it is because mom and dad told them so and they know they're going to be even in more trouble if they don't say what mom and dad said, but they're not feeling a bit of it. Sometimes people say, yes, I forgive you, but no, they don't, because look at, the, what, look at their relationship afterwards. And that person who came for forgiveness does not feel very forgiven because the person blocks them off, ignores them. There is not reconciliation. There's a pouty heart that walks away, still mad, still angry, still hoping something bad will happen to that person. And God's... I really do believe you can know you haven't forgiven someone if you don't want to be around them. And God says, get that out of there. We're family here. We're a forgiving and forgiven community. And I'm pretty sure there's some of that here. It wouldn't be in the Bible if it wasn't. It wouldn't be in this book so many times if it wasn't a problem that all the churches of Christ will have to face. It's a regular part of being a healthy church. And number a six observation is that God tests our obedience. He tests us. In verse 9, he talks about testing them about their willingness to forgive and the trial they went through. And he says, that is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Everything's a lot. Did you know God wants us to be obedient in everything? And He'll test us to find new areas and reveal to us new areas where we're not obeying. And He'll, he'll lovingly guide us and coach us and shepherd us and disciple us. And He'll deal with an issue. And then He'll say, before we can go on to other issues, I need you to obey me in this issue. I need you to come under my teaching and my leadership in this area of your life. He doesn't do everything at once. He's very kind and patient and, and very long-suffering with us, but He's always working on the next thing. None of us ever arrive to where God's got nothing else to do with us. Perfection is for another world, not this world. It's for another life, not this one. But as long as we're alive and breathing, that God has things He's going to work on in our life, bringing us along into greater and greater obedience in Christ. That's His goal. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ and have the Spirit of God working in us, sanctifying us. That is sanctification. And along with sanctification comes tests 
of obedience. God tested Abraham and asked him to sacrifice his own son. God tested Joseph to see if he would be faithful to live alone in a pagan land. And God tested Job in the most severe trials imaginable. And James wrote to Christians who were being persecuted as they scattered abroad in the Roman world. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, not because of the trial, but because of what God had in mind through the trial. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, God's going to build your faith through a trial. Understand that and appreciate the trial. Don't wash away the very thing. Don't ask God to wish away. Don't wish away the very thing God wants to use to make you stronger. Sometimes we just go, Lord, remove the trial, remove the trial. But what if the trial is the very means to deepen your walk with God? And we're wishing away, no pain, Lord. I thought the deal was a, a painless life, an easy life. Where do you read that in the Bible? That's not in there. That what's in there is that you will be called to follow Christ and you will face trials and tribulations and you need to stand firm in your faith and God will supply everything you need no matter what circumstance or situation you must go through. And guess what He's going to do? He's going to show off when you trust Him through the trial. He's going to show His strength when you're weak. And notice a seventh thing. Satan's designs in verse 11. In verse 11 it says that we would not be outwitted by Satan. So that must imply that Satan's a pretty clever rascal. And he can outwit people and he will outwit you. He will outwit you if you ignore Him or if you don't learn about His designs, for we are not ignorant of His designs. How many people in here are ignorant of Satan's designs? And you'll say, well, I don't, not that I know of. Well, isn't that the point? If you don't know what His designs are, then you're ignorant of them. If you don't know and you're not certain, like, here's how He attacks. Here's where He attacks me. Here's where he attacks our church. Here's where he's attacking teenagers. Here's where he attacks my home. Here's where he attacks my marriage. Here's where he attacks my family. Don't be an ignoramus. <laughs> Get smart about Satan's designs. Satan is a sneaky snake, a vile viper, a slithering serpent, and he hates, he murders, he lies, he steals, he has a plan to destroy churches. He's not randomly shooting into the air. He has a plan to destroy churches, marriages, towns, schools, neighborhoods, nations, and businesses. Do not let Satan outwit you. Do not let Satan dupe you. Do not let Satan slither under the door or find a crack in the wall. He constantly, constantly promotes sin without stop. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's one of his things is to get you to sin any way possible. Any way possible, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works 
of the devil. So we're against the works of the devil, but we need to know what the devil is up to. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, it says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Without even knowing it, your mind as a follower of Christ can be led astray. That's what he says. That's what he wrote. I'm afraid, he says, that you're like Eve more than you think you are. That you may somehow be led astray. Which, which, which proves that you may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If you're not careful, your sincerity and your love for Christ will be led astray. Your devotion will decline if you're not watchful. In John 8, it says, You belong to your Father. Jesus was speaking to religious Pharisees who thought they were so zealous for God. And He says, No, no you're not. You're really a bunch of devils. And your father, the devil, you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be alert. Like, don't be dumb. Be alert. Don't be sleepy. Don't go sleepy on God. Be alert and of a sober mind. Think clearly. Your enemy, the devil, he won't bother you. You're a Christian. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking, looking for someone to devour. He wants you. He wants your kids. He wants your church. He wants your reputation. He wants everything. He is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. And guess what happens if people aren't perceiving him to be that kind of an evil force? Resist him. Be alert. Be sober. Resist him. Resisting, resistance is an active, it's an active quality. Be resisting. Resist him now. Never stop resisting. Stand firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Satan is alive and Satan is busy and he never stops working. He has legions of soldiers and demons roam the earth to carry out his will. Do not be ignorant of his designs. He has plans and strategies. He has partners. He has tools. He has resources, power, money, territory. Put on the whole armor of God and you will be, or else you will be shot in the head, pierced in the side, lopped off at the arm, crushed at the ankles, speared in the heart. You walk out without the armor of God on and that area where you are unarmed, Satan will assault you and attack you and he's just waiting for you to walk out the door unarmed. Have you had days like that? You had days like that where you walked out unarmed? And you're like, what is going on today? And suddenly you go, man, I have not spent any time with God. I've not met with God. I've not sought the Lord. I've not asked His blessing upon my day. I'm just out here acting like there's no devil. And I'm just out here going along doing my will, thinking I am in good shape to face the day. And I haven't even asked the favor and blessing of God upon my day. I have not put on the first piece of armor. And you just walk out like you're... Superman, and you get shot down, you can suddenly you start going, What's going on? 
I'll tell you what's going on. You walked out undressed. You went naked. And the devil didn't even have to take careful aim. You were so vulnerable. And the Word of God says, don't do that. And an eighth observation is that there are open doors for evangelism. In verse 12, he talked about an open door. God opens doors. He went to preach the gospel in Troas, and he says, a door opened for me and the Lord, and so I just want to make sure that we're trying to be attentive to God's ability to open doors for us as a church. Where is God opening? God opens doors for you, friends. Where is God opening a door for you? There are people that God has put in your pathway, and it's an open door, and you're not doing, you're, you're not following, you're not heeding, you're not sharing the gospel with people. If you're not sharing the gospel with people, then you're hiding in the closet. And God says, tell, my, tell people, tell the good news. You don't have to stand on the street corner and, and, and scream at everybody that's at the red light, even though they can't hear a word you're saying. What you do is you, you look for open doors. It's like, God, where's a door you've opened? Have you you've brought this person into my life? Maybe I need to start praying and looking for how do, I, how do I build that relationship and look for the opportunity to share Christ. I, I go to the, you know, the grocery store and I go to the gas station and I go to work out and I go, um, I have friends at school or I've met these parents and my kids are on ball teams and there's a whole families connected to them and there's I go to work every day and I have co-workers and my family calls me and this tragedy has occurred or different things occur and there's like doors opening left and right doors just opening more doors and more doors and you won't go into any of them and then you're sitting there going I wonder what my ministry is I don't have a ministry the problem is you don't have eyes to see what God is doing Everybody has ministry because you can testify to Jesus all the time. There was an open door for evangelism, but there was also something I'll just simply call the providence of God. In verse 13, he says, A door was open to the Lord, but my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So God opened a door, but something happened in the providence of God, in the care of God, in the oversight of God. There's someone he loved very much named Titus. There was something going on and he had to go after Titus. Even though God had opened the door, he knew that that was also something God wanted him to do. So he stayed very close in step with the Spirit of God. And a tenth thing is the triumph, triumphal procession of Jesus Christ. In the midst of it all, he could see Christ was on the move. In the midst of everything, a Christian should be able to see that God is on the move. He's never not on the move. Sometimes His movements shake the earth more than at other times. And it feels to me, does it feel to you? It feels to me a bit like He might be shaking the earth right now. I kind of feel that. How else do revivals occur? How can people stand for hours and hours and hours and praise God and fall on their face before God and seek God? How in the world can you get college students to worship God for hours and hours? How do you get people who are in what we would think the prime of their glory, athletically, mentally, freedom, unhindered freedom, and they're choosing to stay all night and worship God for long hours? What is that? 
It is a hallelujah. And the, we see that Christ is marching triumphantly towards something. And that something is His glorious return. And wherever we're at in history, from the very moment the march began, the moment Satan tried to destroy the work of God, and Jesus Christ, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, declared on that very day that you're going to be wiped out, devil. In the Garden of Eden, Satan knew he was doomed because there's someone's going to come, he's going to crush your head. And the parade began, a long parade, a long parade of history where Christ ultimately would be exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where this parade is going. And we as Christians need to know that and see that no matter what era of history we're living in. Okay, and then an eleventh thing is the aroma of Christ on the saints of God. And when you come around, some people go, mm, you smell good. And other people are going to say, you stink. Some people are going to say, man, you smell good. You remind me of Christ, and I love that aroma. And some are going to go, you stink like religion. You smell bad. And Jesus gives us an aroma when we're along with Him. When we're along with Him. I don't know about you, but if, sometimes if I go to a certain restaurant, I come out smelling like that restaurant. You ever do that? You ever get in the car and go, what did you eat? Where have you been? And you have the aroma of where you've been. Do you know when people meet with God and linger with God, the smell of Christ gets on them. When people are in the presence of God for long, they begin to smell more and more the beauty, beautiful fragrance of Jesus Christ. And to those people who are Christians or longing for Christ, it's the sweetest smell. It is the smell of life unto life. And someone says, I don't know what it is about you, but I want that. What is it? And it's the aroma of Christ. And you go around another group and they don't like and they have no interest in the things of God and you come around and they're like, what's that stink? I don't like what somebody around here. And they don't even recognize it. But what it is is that their rebellion against God is being awakened by the presence of someone who loves God. And the very last thing is that there's two kinds of gospel messengers and there's cheap peddlers of God's Word are those who are called and commissioned. And Paul says, we're not cheap peddlers. Cheap peddlers are the people who use the gospel for their own advantages. Someone's like, yeah, I'm in the ministry. It's a, it's a good job. It's a nice job. I, I get paid okay, and, and people look at me and just honor, and I, I like my job. Do you know, I couldn't even begin to imagine how many people don't belong in the ministry. And they're there for the wrong reasons and they become peddlers of God's Word. Cheap salesmen. Cheap salesmen peddling the Word of God as if it was some kind of ointment. Like an old cowboy movie with the guy comes in out of town and he's got his funny hat on, he sets up his stands and he's got all these potions and they're nothing but alcohol or, or you know, what is it? Snake oil, as they say. And, and there are many people peddling snake oil from the pulpit of God. And they stand up and say, you know, I don't know. We just need to follow the love, Jesus' love. And don't know that He really walked on water. It doesn't really matter. Don't know that He rose from the dead. It's, it's, the, it's the idea of the thing. Just love. Everyone just come in here and love. And He's just pouring snake oil all over everybody. And He doesn't declare the powerful Word of God. And people lose their, 
confidence in the Word of God and because there's cheap peddlers of God's Word, but then there's those who were called and commissioned. And Paul said, we are commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And that's the big difference. So let me close, and I just want to draw your attention to what we've been talking about. In order to be healthy and effective as a church and as a Christian, you need to deal with sin in your lives. We need to deal with sin in our church. And some of you need to do that today. There may be sin in your life right now, and you need to do that today. It's like, Lord God, I've got some stuff in my heart, and I just really need to confess it to you. You need to face trials that God is sending in order to deepen and strengthen your faith and embrace God's goodness. It's like, Lord God, there's this trial in my life and I've been angry at you. And it's hurtful and it's hard and I've been wanting it to go away. Will you just help me, God? Help me to see that you are still a loving Father. Forgive me that I've had anger well up inside of me against you or angry at other people or I'm just upset. And help me to see that what you're really doing is really not that you've forsaken me, it's that you love me. And I take what's going on in my life right, God, and I just want to bow it and bring it to you this morning. I just want to bring where I'm at in life and place it before you. And some of you need to do that. Uh, number three is experience the power of God's forgiveness and healing and be a forgiving and healing community of believers. Some of you need to go to someone and say, hey, I've, I've done something against you and I need you, we ask you to forgive me and then you need to tell them I forgive you and you need to hug them. Just hug them. And just say, brother, sister, that means so much. You don't know how much that means to me. And you make sure that we have a loving community of believers where forgiveness is asked for and offered and received. And number four, we need to increase our awareness of Satan's strategies and especially beware of any strategies that he might currently be employing here and now to divert us and destroy us. And folks, we need to get the fragrance of Christ all over us. Okay? We need the fragrance of Christ all over us. And then we need to remember that triumphant parade. And every time we sing songs to God, every time we come and praise and worship God, we need to be thinking, I'm part of something that is so glorious and it's going to get increasingly glorious and it's going to increase and multiply and it's going to get better and better and stronger and stronger until one day Jesus bursts through the sky. And it's going to be obvious to everyone what we've known all along. We've known that He's coming. He's coming. And we're celebrating the coming of Christ before He comes because we know it and we believe it and we've bought in. And it's the only thing that keeps us going in the dark night. And we go forward and we say, Christ is coming. Don't you worry, my friend. And we comfort one another and say, my brother, my sister, Christ is coming. And we go to the unbeliever and we say, did you know that Christ is coming? Are you ready for Christ coming? He's coming. I don't know if you believe it or not, but let me tell you, I believe it with all my heart. Can I just tell you why I believe it? Would you listen to me and let me tell you that Jesus Christ is coming. I don't know the exact hour. I don't know the exact day, but I believe with all my soul and being, with every fiber within me, Jesus is coming. Don't you want to be part of it? Don't you want to be celebrating? Why would you be terrified of the coming of the Lord? How about being thrilled about the day of the coming of the Lord? 
And that's what we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We gather and we celebrate the triumphant procession that Jesus is marching closer and closer and He's coming. And so as we sing this morning, you probably, I've given you plenty of things to have business with God about. And whatever in the final song you need to do, if you just want to praise Him for His coming, then praise Him for His coming. But if you've got sin in your heart and you just need to say, Lord, I just need to lay some things down, then do that. And it might be that the one thing you need to do more than anything else is say, Lord God, I've never laid my life before you and call upon Jesus and say, Jesus, would you just come into my heart right now? I need you and I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Call upon the Lord and he will save you. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the glory. Help us to be alert to Satan's devices and help us to be pursuing Jesus and his remedies. In his precious name we pray. Amen.